0: Welcome to the Remote Warfare Program's podcast. My name is Megan Calza-Peterson, and I'm a research and policy intern. In May 2018, the Remote Warfare team released a briefing on the 2013 vote in Parliament, in which MPs rejected military action in Syria, as proposed by Prime Minister David Cameron. The briefing that we released examined whether this vote really was the symbol of a pacifist Parliament that has often become portrayed as, and today we have panels to discuss the findings of our research. So please, let's go around and introduce ourselves.
1: Hi, my name's Liam Walpole. I'm the Senior Advocacy Officer for the Remote Warfare Programme.
2: And I'm Abigail Watson, and I'm the Senior Research Officer
0: at the Remote Warfare Programme. Thank you very much. So The work that we're discussing today took place over five years ago, and a lot has changed since then. Why did you decide to examine this topic now? Yeah, so uh, it sort of came as a surprise to us that we were examining this topic. It
2: all started about 18 months ago when we started looking into whether remote warfare was working so what we mean by remote warfare is the shift post iraq and Afghanistan away from the large scale sort of boots on the ground deployments of those interventions towards more light footprint military interventions which see intervening nations playing more of a supporting role providing things like air support intelligence or training to local and regional forces who do the bulk of frontline fighting. So we started by running um, a series of roundtables with experts from think tanks, academia, government, the military, asking whether this approach was working. And one of the big things that came out of those roundtables, especially initially, was the idea that you couldn't pass much more than that through Parliament. So there, there was this idea that post-Iraq, the shadow of Iraq was so big that Parliament had almost become pacifist and it was unclear now what Parliament would be willing to approve. And so that is why we had to be intervene through remote warfare. And I think a number of, of things have sort of almost cemented that in recent years. So we have the rise of Jeremy Corbyn from the leader of the Stop the War Coalition, to now leader of the opposition. And it seems to have almost solidified that belief that we have
0: a pacifist parliament and we're unsure what now it would be willing to approve. And what kind of comments are we seeing from MPs on this kind of movement towards remote worker
1: Yeah, so you even got government ministers, um, for example, Alistair Burt, who's Minister of State for the Middle East and North Africa, sort of post the Syria conflict saying mm-hmm. that it's illustrated that the public is sort of hesitant towards um, the use of force and that parliament itself really doesn't know what sort of um, action it would uh, approve now and you've also got MPs uh, like Tom Tugnutt who was an author co-author of a report from Policy Exchange uh, that was was arguing that it was really vital to learn the lessons from um, Iraq and Afghanistan but the correct response was not to refuse to ever act again Um, similarly Johnny Mercer Um, who, like Tom Tugela, also served um, in Afghanistan um, has said that we've got to wake up from this hangover from Iraq before it becomes terminal for this this nation's global standing. So you've really got this idea and this challenge um, to sort of seeing when parliament will actually take action ever again.
0: Great, thank you. Can you tell a little bit more about the vote itself?
2: Yeah, so it was on the 29th of August, twenty thirteen, which meant that MPs were sadly brought back from their summer recess a little early. Um, it was it's
1: never a good way to, uh, you know, tell MPs to come back, is it?
2: <laughs> yeah, still in their bikini. Yeah. <laughs> Um There was some stories, wasn't there, about people coming like straight from their holiday <laughs> yeah, with, with their suitcases. <laughs> from their <body> <laughs> <laughs> um
1: And
2: so it was. It was in response to. Um, chemical weapons attack in Gauta which was allegedly by the Assad regime Um, and this came in the context of Obama setting a red line on chemical weapons and then sort of mobilising an international response against the attack um, bringing together um, the UK and France and then looking like they were going to start taking airstrikes Almost imminently in the country. And then as MPs started to filter back from their summer holidays, there was it, it started to look like Cameron wasn't going to get the votes. And so Cameron himself changed the thing they were voting on from immediate military action to the principle of military action, which, as I'm sure we'll discuss later, started to make things look a lot more confusing. He eventually lost the vote by 285 votes to two hundred and seventy two, and there was there this narrative that he was the first prime minister to lose a parliamentary vote on military action since Lord North in seventeen eighty two. Which
1: does sound a bit drastic, mm-hmm. um, and of course, Lord North would have faced very different sort of uh, parliamentary um, situation and circumstances um, to what Cameron did experience. But the it,
2: symbolism, the symbolism was definitely course, there. Like yeah, you had. Yeah. You have Boris Johnson that came out and said it was the most epic parliamentary cock-up since Lord North. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. And, and you'd usually expect, a Prime Minister would usually expect to have bipartisan support, like Tony Blair did in 2003 for military intervention. So, I mean, there were discussions that David Cameron would have to resign for not getting that support. So, I mean, it was quite a significant... Um, outcome for him
2: and especially especially because of the impact on international relations as well mm-hmm. so you had um the then defense secretary philip hammond saying it would it was really going to damage the uk us relations because cameron had just failed to deliver on his mm-hmm. promise to barack obama he he said he had the votes in commons and then just didn't and then it impacted obama's decision um having lost a main uh, ally he then postponed the u.s u.s mm-hmm. action definitely um, and it also, I mean, it also had an impact or perceived, was perceived to have an impact on the image of the West more mm-hmm. more broadly.
0: Yeah. Okay, so Liam, you mentioned in the beginning that there were some comparisons made to Lord North. Yeah. Who um, was Prime <laughs> Minister in the 1770s during the American War of Independence. But that the system he was facing was actually quite different from the system we have today. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that difference?
1: Yeah, so I think the main thing is to set... Set out what the War Powers Convention is. So, in Lord North's day, there wouldn't have been the War Powers Convention. The War Powers Convention was brought in in 2003 by Tony Blair uh, when he wanted to he wanted to take Britain to the Iraq War with the with the US. Um, now, it's part of a, a narrative by the Labour Party that was sort of. Um, Boiled up over the 90s of the new Labour m- movement, where they wanted to constrain the, the, the raw prerogative powers which are left over from, from Britain's um, monarchist past, um, and of course, still, still a part of our, our parliamentary system as well. But that the Prime Minister should not be able to dictate through raw prerogative um, when the UK uh, goes to war, and it should be, Parliament should have a role in that. Um, so we saw after the 2003 uh, Iraq. Um, intervention, that the conservatives in opposition were supportive of the convention, that they were even considering introducing a war powers law, um, and when they came into coalition government with the Liberal Democrats in 2010, they included as part of the cabinet office manual. Now, this slightly changed their mind eventually about the, the war powers law, but they did um, enact the war powers convention in uh, 2011 over intervention in Libya, um, but... I think it's just important to note that comparison with Lord North again is that in the, in the past, if you look at, for example, the 1983 Falklands intervention, um, Michael Foote, who was the leader of the Labour Party at the time, said, uh, one, uh, wanted the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, to, to bring a vote before Parliament. Um, and her opinion was that Parliament's role is to pass judgment after the fact rather than before it. And that's the difference between the War Powers Convention. So that it has always been that it would um, approve action before it's even taken place.
0: And how did you undertake the research for this briefing? So there was two sort of two sides to it. First of all, we
2: undertook interviews with about 10 MPs and experts who were in and around Parliament at the time of the vote to ask them about how they felt about this narrative that it was a pacifist Parliament that lost the vote, what issues they thought were more important, sort of things that have been missed in the mainstream debate around the vote since it's happened. Um, and then the other aspect of it was the discourse analysis. So we looked at the sort of things people were highlighting in the reports, how many times sort of things were said, and the, the trends and patterns we could take from that.
1: So this is like Hansard, the, the yeah, yeah, of yeah. official recordings yeah. of the debates at the time. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. and so I just, yeah, it's maybe worth mentioning the types of people we interviewed. So they were from the two major parties, there were some civil servants. Some employees working with relevant select committees. And there were all sorts of levels, weren't there? there were, yeah. um, I'm saying weren't there because Liam was with me. <laughs> um, so there were some, some pretty senior politicians within both sides, some people that had been there a long time, some yeah. that were quite new, and some that were staff for politicians. I think it's
1: worth just saying as well that we regard the two major parties being Labour and the Conservatives, so sorry to the Lib Dems and SNP and Greens on that, but... But we did, we did ask them. Yes, we did, we but we did invite them, them to, to speak to us about it, but uh, we mainly got um, responses from Labour and Tories.
0: Yeah, and something that we often hear is that there was a shadow of Iraq, which cast a really large role in the reluctance of Parliament to actually approve the um, intervention. Do you think that's close to reality? Is that something you found that MPs tended to mention quite a lot? Yeah,
2: I think both in the interviews and in the debates, mm-hmm. we saw that the Iraq war loomed large for the MPs that were just debating the issue. It was mentioned a 100 and times throughout the discussion in the House of Commons. The then leader of the opposition, Ed Miliband, stated, I'm very clear about the fact we have to learn the lessons of Iraq in his initial speech. We also had Angus Robertson, who was the leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party, um, In Westminster. In Westminster, (laughs) saying, again, that um, we needed to learn the lessons of this calamitous war in Iraq. Um, And it was also interesting to look at the debates around intelligence and evidence at the time. So um, evidence was mentioned 114 times and intelligence was mentioned 83 times. And a lot of the times they were mentioned, it was around... It was around politicians wanting to make sure they weren't misled again when it came to intelligence. For example, Conservative MP James Obufnot, the who was chairman of the Defence Committee at the time, saying, I personally believe Tony Blair when he said that he believed there was weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. You were also in our interviews with Sir David Amos. Mm-hmm. He spoke of the damage that Tony Blair had done to parliamentary trust when he lied at the dispatch box. Although saying this, there were, I did feel like there was a difference between the Iraq war meaning that politicians were fearful of intervention yeah. and the Iraq war meaning that it, politicians were scared of just letting something go through again. They were more careful
0: to question yeah. the government,
2: question the strategy. Responsibility to get yeah, that right. Yeah, they felt more of a responsibility.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would completely agree. So you were talking a little bit about how um, the MPs had the emotions towards this vote and how that changed, mm-hmm. um, how they voted. Do you think there's also a sense among MPs that they had to vote in a certain way because of their perceptions of public opinion?
1: No, I think this is a really interesting one, um, a factor in determining like, how MPs voted. Um, I think it, there's no doubt that MPs at the time of the vote got a lot of correspondence. That was definitely the message that we were getting from MPs that we interviewed. Um, and I know just from my experience working in Parliament at the time that we, we got a lot of, of um, emails and uh, letters about the, the, the vote on it. Um, but trying to determine to what extent that actually influenced MPs' decisions and their votes is very difficult. Um, and I think just as a s- slight side note here as well, in terms of the emails that MPs get, a lot of them are campaign emails from organisations like 38 Degrees, or there are others, that generate emails automatically for people um, who are passionate about a particular campaign issue. So there is talk of sometimes MPs receiving emails that didn't have the correct MP on the email. So <laughs> trying to judge to what extent they're really, they really care about that issue is very difficult when it's very easy just to press a button. Um, and I think also it comes down to this idea of what role does an MP play? Are they a representative or are they a delegate? Um, and I think for, for a lot of MPs, they view themselves to be representatives much more than they do delegates, so they, they obviously take on board what their, their constituents have said, but at the end of the day, it's up to them to then go and vote on the evidence so that they have, the judgment that they want to make.
2: Especially for issues as important yeah. as this. like yeah. There's a, a really good journal article by Dr James Strong from Queen Mary's, and he,
0: mm-hmm.
2: he highlighted this same thing, that when it came to military intervention he did feel that there was a sense that MPs while taking on the views of their constituents saw it as too important yeah, just to yeah. base it on how many yeah. uh, how many bulk emails they'd got
1: I, I think it's difficult with this one because it was there was a whip whereas with other sort of votes of conscience if you like you usually have a free vote and MPs are there then able to you know decide on their conscience Um, whereas this one was whipped, and I think it's very difficult to whip something that is very controversial and very difficult to judge.
0: And were there any other factors which you think were prominent leading to the rejection of intervention?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the the way that this was handled by Cameron um, and his sort of immediate um, inner circle did have a a sort of a knock-on effect in terms of how successful he was at getting this through Parliament. So if you look at um, sort of trying to get the parliamentary arithmetic in place, the votes in place, um, coming back after a summer recess, not having the opportunity to sort of work the tea rooms. And by that I mean uh, have sort of face on face time with MPs. It's usually the tradition that um, the prime Minister will attempt to get support amongst sort of backbenchers, junior MPs who they wouldn't often see Um, because they're obviously incredibly busy but there's evidence that that didn't happen at least there wasn't an opportunity to to let that happen because he brought them back right at the end as Abby's described, um, of recess
2: and I think it's maybe worth I I mean it's hard to tell isn't it because (laughs) you don't know how much how it would have played out differently if he had had the time but a lot of the interviews that we had we got the sense that he was he was quite arrogant. He mm-hmm. thought he was just going to push it through. Like there was, um, there was a story from a political correspondent who heard the banging of the table of a meeting between mm-hmm. Cameron and Tory MPs, where there was really the sense that he was just going to like push it through yeah. regardless. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder how how good he would have been yeah, at yeah, those yeah. tea room chats in that in that mindset. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's very true. And I think it's also important to to say that those tea room chats wouldn't necessarily just include his own backbenchers, but the opposition themselves as well, and I think trying to get the support of Miliband. Although there are different stories about how this sort of came about, but we know that on the the day of the vote, before around 5:30 p.m., I think it is um, Cameron thought he had the support of Miliband, and with that, the the support of the Labour Party for the government motion. Um, But after that, uh, Ed Miliband, um, through what we believe, um, and what we're led to understand, is that he didn't have the support of the Labour Party, and therefore had to change his mind. Um, and of course, there's sort of a perception that he was um, betraying Cameron on that. Uh, but I think he generally didn't feel he had the support, and given the experience, of the part, the history of the Labour Party over the last sort of decade with the Iraq War, he felt it was not right for him to then push that that through.
2: And I, I think it's worth, in some of the interviews that we had with quite senior, who were then quite senior mm-hmm. members of the the Labour Shadow Cabinet, there was a sense that the they thought that the the the. The motion that they were putting yeah. through as an alternative mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was very similar, but had like critical yes. safeguards yeah. that they felt were so important. Then, mm-hmm. if Cameron didn't accept them, they couldn't accept the motion. Yeah. Yeah, that was exactly. certainly the sense. And I don't we think
1: we should uh, underestimate the sort of the, the growing tension between both parties within the coalition as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, a year before, you had the, the tension over the House of Lords reform, and also. the the Conservative government's sort of boundary commission, there's this sort of quid pro quo that if the Lib Dems supported the boundary changes, that then the Conservatives would support House of Lords reform, but that agreement sort of collapsed um, in 2012, and there was definitely sort of um, hard feelings between the two of them, and I think that probably played a role um, to a certain extent on the loyalty that some MPs felt towards the government.
2: Yeah, and you have, again, I can't recommend enough James Strong's article Mm -hmm. in this, but him saying there's no... There's no worse government than for passing military action than a weak conservative one, mm-hmm. and nowhere was that truer than in August 2013. I mean, you had like you had Jenny Willet, who was Lib Dem the, the government whip at the time, <laughs> asking <That's great. laughs> asking before the vote like which way she was going to vote, yeah. and she was undecided. Yeah. It's su- it's such a slightly
1: <laughs> problematic doesn't know which way to vote. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. And I just I just think that made. The opposition vote, especially important, and the fact that Cameron missed that was, it, to to me,
0: it just shows a complete mishandling of the of the process. Yeah, yeah. And can you maybe say a little bit more about Cameron's specific role in regards to like the big st- strategic um talks this time?
2: Yeah, I think I think especially with that, this all plays into a broader sense that MPs just didn't think that Cameron had a good enough strategy and a lot of them didn't vote for it because they didn't believe he had control of the situation. So during the debate, strategy or objective was mentioned 70 times. You had a lot of MPs coming out before and during the debate saying that they just didn't feel convinced that that this wasn't going to cause more problems. So you had uh, Right Honourable George Howarth, who then became a member of the Intelligence and Security Committee, saying, I'm not yet convinced that this course of action would achieve Cameron's stated aims. Um, A number of MPs drew attention to the complexities on the ground in Syria, which Cameron didn't convince them he grappled with enough. So you had Sermon Campbell, former uh, Lib Dem leader, saying, my concern is that once we open the gate it will be difficult to close it um and then this was also reflected there was an open letter by 81 conservative mps i think about two months before saying that if cameron decided to arm syrian rebels he had to take it to a parliamentary vote because there were many sides and no end and at the same time you had quite senior, well-respected people from former governments coming out saying that they didn't believe it would work. So you had Lord Dannett, the former head of the army, who reportedly said that he didn't support the intervention. You had Lord Hurd, former foreign secretary, who said, I can't see how this would lessen the suffering of the Syrian people. And then I, I think this also played in to a real push for international support. It was felt that if the international community was more behind it it would move away from just the us the uk and france just going yeah. in with sort of a, a half-cocked strategy so you had Miliband in his initial speech again saying that um international support was vital the un actually was mentioned 181 times which i thought was quite interesting um and simon hughes I and mean, this, this also i'm, I'm saying quote, quotes throughout this but these are just typical quotes that kept coming up mm-hmm. so Simon Hughes saying, will the Prime Minister assure the House that he will do his utmost to engage other countries to try and make the UN route more productive? Um, And then there was this, this greater sense that Cameron should have done more before he asked them to approve military action. And I think it also maybe comes back to the fact that they were asked to come back early and it created this immediate... Yeah. They th- there was all these comments, wasn't there, about if we approve military action, there'll be planes mm-hmm. setting off tomorrow yeah, yeah. to go and bomb yeah. Syria. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think also just to end on maybe here, um, but that there was definitely a thought or uh, the view that the vote on Libya in 2011, which had authorised airstrikes, had then led to regime change and I think there was a concern that, well, what is, as, as Abby's described, these 81 Conservative MPs in their letter saying, well, what is the end game? Are we, are we talking about the removal of Assad? Um, you know, where, where are airstrikes? Where is limited action going to take us? And I think you had that case study of, of Libya as well, uh, of where airstrikes hadn't led to the political settlement and sort of long-term solution that had been promised.
0: Thank you very much for this really interesting discussion. Um, As you all probably know, this was not the end of the UK engagement in Syria and the discussion of whether we should engage or not. Um, So as we discussed in the beginning, there's been a lot of stuff that's happened since this vote. Um, Can you tell us about the significant developments of the UK's engagement in Syria since 2013?
2: Yeah, and I think think maybe it's even worth going straight after the vote Mm -hmm. and how that set the tone. So immediately after the vote, we certainly in our interviews with politicians since, we got the sense that this was this was gonna be the start of a conversation, that they were expecting Cameron to come back with a, a better proposal, maybe, for some of the Labour MPs, the Labour proposal, <laughs> um, come back and present a better strategy. But then there was, he came out straight away mm-hmm. and, and said, I get it, you don't want military intervention, that's fine, I'll act accordingly.
1: Yeah, I think, I think as well that the, the response that Cameron gave, um, that he's, and he stated that he felt that the Parliament and also the British public, that was his statement, did not want military action and the government will act accordingly. It was provoked by a point of order by Ed Miliband, um, as he mentioned, the leader of the opposition, who said, just for clarity, does this mean, given the response from the, the House of Commons today, that the government will not use the Royal prerogative to then deploy military force? And that was really uh, from him stating that Look, you need to come back to Parliament if you are going to uh, push forward with with military action. Then we need a new motion that Parliament can then vote on. It wasn't saying that's it. There's no, not going to be any military action. And I think really he shot himself in the foot, of David Cameron, by saying so clearly that, or at least suggesting in his response that no, no military action at all. When really that wasn't what Miliband was getting at.
2: And I think I think that sets the sets the foundations for this rise of remote warfare. We see very soon after that vote that there's reports of UK forces embedded with US forces undertaking strikes in Syria, despite the fact that they didn't accept the vote. Um, And and it's all all covered in our um, All Quiet on the ISIS front report, the secret war against ISIS in the information age, where we show that um, despite the development of the convention and the commitment to more parliamentary oversight, we almost get a split in policy where there's more operations that are that are seeming to p- almost purposely
0: sideline the role of parliament. And then, of course, it's maybe worth mentioning that we have actually seen interventions in Syria since then. So can you maybe tell us a bit more about the UK's engagement in the country since this vote?
2: Yeah, so in December 2015, um, Cameron again... Um, Called Parliament to vote on military intervention in Syria to attack ISIS, and so the the conditions were just so different. There was there was international support. It was just a month after the Charlie Hebdo attacks. Um, ISIS had had grown exponentially more than the international community had expected them to. There was a clear target in ISIS, and there was bipartisan support from. Both parties. <laughs> I think so
1: it's worth also mentioning we were already engaged against ISIS in Iraq, which was yeah. authorized in 2014. So there kind of was like that precedent of going after ISIS as well.
2: Yeah, and it was just seen as like the natural step. Like if they crossed mm-hmm. the boundaries, then surely we should. And um, and it was just it was just clear I felt in people's minds that the per what the purpose was and what the Cameron government was trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And I think that came up quite a lot in our interviews that they felt that there was a substantive difference
0: between the two votes. So, Abby, you were talking about the UK's efforts against ISIS um, in Syria. But Liam, can you maybe tell us a little bit about the strike in April this year? Yeah. Um, where the UK re-engaged um, mm-hmm. with Assad?
1: So this was, again, uh, in response to evidence that Assad regime was using chemical weapons. I think also in the, just in the background that the, the Trump administration, you got a different president in, in the White House the Trump administration had launched airstrikes the year before uh, when there was evidence that um, chemical weapons attacks had, had taken place as well. And it was seen that on this occasion the French, there was definitely a, a sense among the French from the new president Emmanuel Macron as well that they wanted to respond as a have a Western response that wasn't there back in 2013 to, to the use of chemical weapons. Um, so there was, was this a sort of limited strike on chemical weapons facilities in Syria. Now there was controversy from this because the Prime Minister, Theresa May, did not call on Parliament to vote on this before it took place. Um, Now, what's interesting is that Theresa May did provide the legal uh, justification for doing so. She was very upfront. She came before Parliament to explain why um, she did not recall Parliament. But I think we need to be honest as well that she was... um, operating within a minority government there was obviously political ramifications for her if she did have a vote that she didn't win it wouldn't have been the same as david cameron when he lost the vote in 2013 um, it could have led possibly to a general election or at least that was the perceived fear um, and i'm
2: sure i'm sure the august 2013 vote was in the back of her mind oh,
1: absolutely it must have been absolutely it must have been um, and this has sort of led to a broader discussion again about the role of Parliament overseeing the use of force. And it's quite interesting, actually, there's a, an ongoing inquiry with the um, Public Administrations Committee about the role of Parliament overseeing executive decisions, um, and one of them being around military force. So it definitely has sort of brought that debate back into the foreground again.
0: Great. Thank you very much for a really interesting discussion. Um, if any of our listeners would like to know more about our research into the 2013 vote and what we found. You can find our briefing on our website. It's called Pacifism or Pragmatism, the 2013 parliamentary vote on on military action in Syria. It's on our website, which is www.oxfordresearchgroup.org.uk. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
1: See you later.